Today we're going to look at basically just one single topic, mortal sin, uh, and obviously with that venial sin. So we're going through the catechism, but we are pausing in a sense in more detail on some particulars. So of the key things I want you to take away from this course, a knowledge of virtue. So we had two lectures on virtue and the passions. Similarly, a natural law that we're going to do in the following two lectures. Today, we're going to have a whole thing on what within the catechism is just a few paragraphs, but practically speaking, pastorally speaking, an important thing to be very clear about. Now, when I was a pastor, um, my parish youth group, they could have told you this. So without looking down at the sheet, um, what are the three conditions for a mortal sin? Very good. You're good enough to be a teenager. Grave matter, full knowledge, and deliberate consent. Okay, anyone able to tell me in brief the standard description of what constitutes grave matter? So the Ten Commandments is the standard, most common thing referred to. Um, we can also say the seven deadly sins. Obviously, they're all deadly, right? So that they all constitute um, grave matter. We're going to note that includes thoughts, words as well as deeds. So, Council of Trent's very clear, it's quoted in the New Catechism, New Catechism, I'm old enough to still call it the New Catechism. Um, thoughts also can be grave matter. Full knowledge. Now we're going to note that what we need to understand to understand full knowledge is what ignorance means. There's an ignorance that we call vincible, namely you can conquer it and you're duty-bound to conquer it. There's also some ignorance that actually, even with the best will in the world, you wouldn't be able to overcome. So if it's not your fault you're ignorant, invincible ignorance, then you're not morally blameworthy. So therefore it can't be this condition full knowledge. This ignorance can be about facts, can also be about moral laws. And then to understand deliberate consent, um, what do we mean here? Well, if we think about someone who is drugged, they're no longer able to consent. Someone who's sleepy, 
has a diminished capacity to some extent to choose um, diminished I'm not going to say removed um, some of our acts are inadvertent some of them are careless now there's a type of careless that actually is very serious, very morally irresponsible. Um, that we have a duty to be careful. If you're carrying a gun, then just say, oh, well, I didn't mean to kill anyone. Um, well, no, sometimes being careless is very serious. So deliberate consent can include actually um, just a carelessness, a, a refusal to engage your will about things when actually you should be engaging your will choosing. So that, in brief outline, that's what we're going to look at today, what all those bits mean. Yeah? Does invincible Vincible and invincible. Those are the what two categories. Uh, ignorance. The different types of ignorance. We'll, we'll come on and explain that in a bit. Um, there's a type of ignorance that is your fault. There's a type of ignorance that is not your fault. That's going to be an important distinction we need to make in understanding full knowledge. Does everyone see where we're going to be going in this? So actually, in a sense, there's only a limited number of things here we're going to look at, but some of them um, are very important to be clear on. There is, we're not going to touch on it in a catechism level course, um, one of the erroneous opinions that was condemned by uh, the encyclical Veritatis Splendor in 1993 was a theory called the fundamental option theory which basically said, well, if your fundamental option is still good for God, then just because you do really bad stuff, um, that doesn't matter. As long as you're kind of fundamentally still aiming for God, and who isn't? Um, so there's this thing called the fundamental option theory. Um, and basically what mortal sin says is specific acts matter. And sometimes a specific act matters so much, a single act changes you for or against God. Can you give an example of the fundamental? Is what is the fundamental option, you mean? Well, I very briefly kind of described it there. Um, I think if you want more of a description, you'd only understand it after we've kind of gone through mortal sin. You will, we will in this seminary look at it in proper detail when you do fundamental moral theology in a couple of years. Um, but I'm just kind of throwing out there that this topic is one of the topics that a lot of erroneous thinking has been taught in recent decades. Um, so that's one of the reasons I'm pausing and looking at this in more detail with you today.
Okay, page one of the notes. Top of the page, first page, I say key issue. Can a single act reverse your fundamental option for or against God? And Veritatis Splendor says, yes, it can. That there are some actions that are of such significance that you can flip from being in a state of grace to not being in a state of grace. And I note the prim preliminary distinction we're going to be making here is between mortal sin and venial sin, which means not every sin is mortal. Now, scriptural basis, uh, what do we base this on in scripture? 1 John 5, 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. Okay, then we have a couple paragraphs in which I'm just quoting the catechism. So, Josh, can you read the first paragraph, first three lines there, describing mortal sin? Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is his ultimate end and his beatitude, by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin allows charity to subsist, even though it offends and wounds it. Okay, destroys charity. We're all clear in this context what's meant by charity. It's not giving to the poor and not even feeling loving, but charity being that possession of grace, that possession of the life of God himself, that theological charity. So if you possess grace, that love, that possession of the love of God is alive in you. When you kill that love, analogously, because you can't kill God, but we speak of killing the life of grace because it is a life, you can kill that life of God, and that is what is done by mortal sin, deadly sin. What does it kill? Deadly sin kills the life of grace within you. And by preferring an inferior good to him. So it's not just... I say, I hate you, God. Um, that would be a sin of contempt, a, hint, a sin of hatred. But choosing something inferior to him, over him, that uh, is also a rejection of him, a rejection of the life of grace within us. Now we're going to unpack what that means. Um, Brother Adam, can you read the next little section here? When the will sets itself upon something that is of its nature incompatible with the charity that orders man towards his ultimate end, then the sin is mortal by its very object. Whether it contradicts the love of God, such as blasphemy or perjury, or the love of neighbor, such as homicide or adultery, but when the sinner's will is set upon something that of its nature involves a disorder but is not opposed to the love of God and neighbor, such as thoughtless chatter or immoderate laughter and the like, such sins are venial. Okay, so let's note there. Contradicts the love of God or love of neighbor. So your neighbor is in the image and likeness of God. You do something fundamentally against him it is implicitly against God. It therefore kills the life of grace within you, such as homicide or adultery. 
note that adultery is a sin against my neighbor involving both of us at a fundamental level. The last three lines Brother Adam read there, note the examples he gives of venial sin. So these are St. Thomas's examples, but examples that the Catechism chooses to endorse in describing examples of matter, the stuff, that would be venial. Thoughtless chatter, immoderate laughter. These are pretty minor things. Yeah. Now, obviously, we all know when you live in community, um, immoderate laughter can be super annoying. Yeah, but there's no way, it's very hard to see how that could be something that could kill the life of grace within you. So you can have an immoderate laughter that is inconsiderate of everyone else in the refectory, um, but it's not going to be so inconsiderate it's not going to be capable of killing the life of grace within you. So I just want to draw your attention. The examples the church gives here, very small things in terms of matter that is in itself small. What then is venial sin? Can you read the quotation for us there? One commits venial sin when... In a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when he disobeys the moral law in a great matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. Venial sin weakens charity. Deliberate and unrepentant venial sin disposes us little by little to commit moral sin. Okay, so venial sin, I say, well, it doesn't really matter, but I do it again and again and again, and venial sin disposes me to get deeper into sin. So we need to be careful that we don't just say, oh, it's only venial. Um, the guy tucking into that third bowl of trifles saying, well, St. Thomas says gluttony is rarely mortal sin. Um, we just, bit by bit, step by step, um, it gets deeper and deeper. What's being said here? So something could be grave matter, but somehow your knowledge of what's going on or your consent to what's going on isn't sufficient to make it a mortal sin. All three of these conditions have to hold. Hunter, can you read the conditions for mortal sin? Again, quoting the Catechism at the bottom there. For sin to be mortal, three conditions must be met as formulated by St. Alphonsus Liguori. Mortal sin is sin whose object is great matter and which is committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. So the question we're going to unpack the following pages is what is grave matter? What is full knowledge? What is deliberate consent? But the basic distinction, mortal sin, venial sin, we're clear what we're talking about today. Okay, over the page. Grave matter. What is grave matter? Uh, I note in super small font at the top there, I say, this concerns sins considered in the abstract. And I note this condition is easier to satisfy than some soft catechesis suggests. 
So there are people going out there, out there kind of implying, well, there's nothing really that serious. Uh, I think when we look at the tradition properly, there is actually an awful lot of stuff in grave matter. And so m most of the time when our sins aren't mortal, it's more due to a lack of these categories than to a lack of it being grave matter. Though there are things that aren't grave matter, but that actually grave matter can include quite a lot. What can it include? So deeds, that's kind of obvious. Words, so gossip and detraction. So in the seminary, gossip is a serious sin against your neighbor. Backbiting, talking about others, running down their reputation, um, making them therefore less lovable in the sight of others. This is serious stuff. Looks with your eye, according to the Lord. The man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then thoughts, for example, pride or coveting. Um, so the Council of Trent specifies coveting the last two sins of the Ten Commandments um, are about coveting. Coveting is only in your head, but this can be mortal sin. Now I note there, but the immediate arousal of a thought does not imply consent to it. If there's no consent, then there's no sin. If there's partial consent, then there's not mortal sin, but venial sin. Yeah, so just to be clear, just because I'm saying thoughts are grave matter, that doesn't automatically mean a thought being in your head means it's a mortal sin. Yeah. How would you define the difference between like partial consent and consent? This is here. We're still on this page. So we're going to come on to it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but no, it's... Good question, but we're going to come on to that. First, I want us to understand kind of the stuff itself that makes up the matter of the sin, if it's mortal. Okay, as John Paul quoted for us earlier, the most standard kind of definition, as I quote there from the Catechism, grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments. Now, when we go through the Ten Commandments in the Catechism, we'll note that all sin is there somewhere within the Ten Commandments. So it kind of doesn't clarify that much to say that it's specified by the Ten Commandments, but it does say something. I note in addition, the seven deadly sins are also mortal by definition. So pride, vanity, lust, anger, covetousness, envy, sloth, gluttony, um, Pride, um, St. Augustine notes the peculiar, sorry, have I said this before in class? No. Um, the peculiar thing about pride is it can enter into every single sin. Anything I do, I can do in a proud manner. I can even be proud about the way I commit adultery. Um, I can be, pr anything I do, I can be proud about. What were you going to ask? Um, there's eight. 
Ah, and th but there's seven. Yeah, good. See, someone's counting. Um, so, um, pride or vanity are sometimes seen as one or two, depending whose list you're following. Um, pride being the mother of all sin is sometimes seen as outside of the seven deadly sins. Um, so it depends whose list you're following. Other lists would put pride and vanity together. Okay, I note next that gravity can vary, that some mortal sins are more grave than others. So they might both be mortal sins, both capable of killing the life of grace within you, but that doesn't mean they're equally serious. So the Catechism notes, murder is more serious than theft, but theft is in itself grave matter, capable of killing the life of grace within you. Yeah, so just because we're saying it's a mortal sin doesn't mean it's equally serious with other mortal sins. Not all grave matter is equally grave. Next note, a fancy word here, parvity of matter. Now that word isn't in the Catechism, but it's kind of implicit in that statement I just quoted from the Catechism. Some matter can fail to be grave due to its small quantity. For example, in general, theft is grave matter, but stealing an apple from an orchard would generally be considered poverty of matter. Does that example work for everyone? Yeah, so as your general category, theft is grave matter. Stealing an apple from an orchard the matter is too small, poverty of matter is not grave. Stealing an apple from someone who is starving to death, it's still just an apple, but that context wildly changes the calculus. Yeah. Um, so just to say, oh, it's only an apple, the context is going to make a difference there. Last example in this regard. All sexual sins are grave matter. I, there's no poverty of matter in sexual sins. You can't have a little bit of adultery. Um, then quote, um, so the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith used to be the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith, which used to be the Holy Office of the Inquisition. Anyway, they said, as I footnote there, um, according to the Christian tradition and the church's teaching, and as right reason also recognizes, the moral order of sexuality involves such high values of human life that every direct violation of this order is objectively grave. That sex enters into us at a level that of itself makes it grave. So that doesn't mean all sexual sins are mortal, but it does mean they're all, in their matter, grave. Okay, that in a nutshell is what is grave matter? The stuff of the sin. Questions? 
there a distinction to be made between mortal sin and grave sin, both of which are terms that are used interchangeably, but I've heard some say there might be a difference. Um, one of the positions condemned by Veritatis Splendor was an attempt to kind of make those different. So this word graves, so it depends who is using those words, what they mean by them. So if you read a certain type of book, particularly written before the 1990s, they might well be using the word grave sin, trying to kind of imply that there's not really such a thing as mortal sin. Um, whereas generally speaking in the tradition, we talk about grave matter, but mortal sin. Um, so that if it is grave sin, then it's mortal sin. So you're right to have heard that, I'm sure, but um, not a sound distinction to be making. Okay for me to move on? Yeah, sorry. I just have a question about um, the idea of bishops being, only being able to absolve certain sins. Is that an appropriate question for this? Or? Um, what's the question? I don't know. I, I mean, I think abortion is one, right? Um, just how they determine that. Um, what they are. Your questions about what absolves, what forgives the sin, that's a different question from what is sin. Yeah, so here we're thinking about what is sin. Um, the only sins that are what are called reserved sins would be in different ways in the category of mortal sin. So that they're sins so significant that the local pastor can't absolve them. He has to get a special faculty. That's only a rare number of sins. Um, the way you do that is both complicated and quick. Um, so you don't divulge the name of who it is. You don't necessarily know the name of who it is. Um, you go through the bishop's office, uh, who would have a, the congregation for the penitentiary in Rome that deals with this um, very rapidly grant that back. You would have to give enough information for why it should be granted. Most dioceses, I think I'm right in saying every US diocese, that permission is, um, that faculty is granted by the bishops to the local priests. So that I can absolve, lift the censure, the excommunication attached to abortion uh, at any time. If I hear the confession of somebody who has attempted to kill the Pope, um, happens not very frequently, you know, um, <laughs> I, there is a, that would be one of the reserved sins. So there aren't many reserved sins, basically. Um, you will do that in canon law a few years down the line. But how to be forgiven is a different question from whether it's a sin to begin with or in this context, whether it's a mortal sin. So, moving on. We've looked at the stuff of it, the grave matter, what it is. Knowledge. If you don't know 
and you're not, it's not your fault that you don't know, then you're not responsible. It can't be mortal sin. Page three, full knowledge. I say, what does this condition mean? Adam, can you read that quote from the catechism at the top? An action that presupposes knowledge of the simple character of the act, of its opposition to the law of God. So you've got to know it's sinful. Full knowledge, what does it mean? I say, to put it in reverse, it means a lack of ignorance. You know what you are doing. Uh, Michael, can you read footnote 8 for us? So this is from um, a philosopher called Elizabeth Anscombe who wrote a great article kind of looking at all this. The example she puts, footnote 8, could you read for us? It's not enough to be ignorant. You must be not too blameworthily ignorant in order to be free of guilt in respect of an action. And it's simply not true that all affected ignorance, all taking care not to know, all not hoping to find out is really being. This, I think, is a very deadly doctrine. That you have to be absolutely clear about just what you're doing. And saying something to somebody, and giving something to somebody, and taking money from somebody before it can be a grievous sin. So what she's taking exception to is people saying, well, I didn't know it was a mortal sin, so it couldn't have been a mortal sin. She's saying, well, no, there's a not bothering to find out that kind of makes that full knowledge. It's your fault that you're ignorant. The example I put in the top section of the page there, I say, you know what you're doing. Um, John Paul, can you read that? What it means is? What it means is that you've got to know what you are doing, not in the sense that what you are doing is mortal sin, but in the sense that what you are doing is putting poison in your husband's soup. That's a nice, clear example. So the wife is poisoning her husband. She's putting poison in the soup. She's not thinking, I hereby kill the life of grace in my soul. No, she's thinking, I'm going to poison my husband. Uh, she knows what she's doing. That's what full knowledge means. Whether she knows it's a mortal sin isn't relevant. She knows what she's doing and knows it's wrong. Doesn't mean she's thinking it is mortal. It affects me and God. Um, okay, I continue here. I say, you know it is a sin. You are ignorant neither of the relevant facts nor of the relevant moral laws. So facts. You steal. You steal somebody's laptop, but you thought it was your laptop. So it kind of isn't theft. If you're ignorant of a fact, then you're not to blame, unless you choose to be ignorant of the fact. That the laptop looks nice to me, and I'm not going to care to look too closely whether it's mine or somebody else's. It kind of looks like mine. If I take it, I might end up with two, or it might just be mine all along. I'm not going to bother to really find out too much. There's a way of not f knowing that is my fault. Ignorance of the relevant moral laws. Um, so it might be your fault that you've not thought about it enough to know that you shouldn't do this thing. 
um, that you've not read the Bible enough to know you shouldn't do this thing. So relevant of facts, relevance of the moral law. Okay, continue. You are not intentionally ignorant, or you're not ignorant due to your own neglect. And I note the distinction between vincible ignorance and invincible ignorance. That you are blameworthy for acts you commit due to vincible ignorance. So vincible ignorance. The word vincible, well, invincible, invincible means you can't conquer it. It's invincible. If your ignorance is invincible, there's no way you could get rid of that ignorance. Therefore, it's not your fault. Whereas if you could have overcome your ignorance, and actually a normal person, so to speak, would have done so, then it's your fault. You don't know. So when you go hunting, and the bush is moving, um, you don't know whether it's a deer moving the bush or whether it's Michael moving the bush. And you just blast your gun into the bush because it might be a deer. Um, well, actually, you have a duty to find out whether it's a human being there. Yeah. Um, there's a type of ignorance that we have just a normal duty, and we know we have a normal duty to find out the facts. And if you don't bother, then you're killing Michael you're morally responsible for. Sorry, Michael. Yeah? What would an example of invincible ignorance be, especially with regards to killing Michael? Would it be like invincible. Suit? <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. So, <laughs> um, he puts on a deer suit or he... <laughs> He gets some antlers, because he's having a fun time with this, um, <laughs> pretending to be a deer. Um, so he creates a scenario where you reasonably would think actually it was a deer. Um, or somebody parks their car in my parking slot and it's actually the same car type as mine, and I drive off in it and, in it and damage it, well, it's kind of not my fault because it was put in my spot. Um, is that a couple slightly far-fetched examples? But we can think there are things, there are mistakes we make that a reasonable person would make such a mistake. And then, that would be an example of invincible ignorance. It might be technically possible to overcome it, but a reasonable person would make that mistake. Let me continue with my notes there. So kind of the next section I say, full knowledge, what does it not mean? It does not mean that you know you are in mortal sin. So St. Thomas teaches, a person cannot know whether or not he's in a state of mortal sin. Um, then quote St. Paul, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who will judge me. 
And I say a person invincible ignorance may be ignorant of the fact that he's in a state of mortal sin. So you don't know that you're in a state of mortal sin. That doesn't mean you're not in a state of mortal sin. Yeah? So if you don't know you're in a state of mortal sin and you receive the Eucharist, do you bring more condemnation on yourself? Yes, in short. We'll come back to that question in a bit more detail later, but yes. Uh, and that's why if I've done something that kind of at the external level of the matter I know is wrong and seriously wrong, I shouldn't go to communion until I've remedied that in confession. Um, but we'll come back to that question in a bit. Um, I say it does not mean that you explicitly choose to reject God in the act. Otherwise, I say contempt for God would be the only mortal sin. Uh, Hunter, could you read the quote there? This is from John Paul II. A person therefore sins. I'm sorry, where? Oh, a person invincible ignorance. A person therefore sins. I don't know where Oh, a person therefore sins mortally, not only when his action comes from direct contempt for love of God and neighbor, but also when he consciously and freely, for whatever reason, chooses something which is seriously disordered. So what am I trying to articulate? What's he trying to articulate there? Contempt for God is obviously mortal sin. Yeah, how could there be anything more clearly mortal sin than a direct contempt against him? But what the church is saying in all of this is there's a kind of implicit contempt for him by having contempt for what he teaches, for the way of life he calls us to. Um, so it doesn't just mean I know I am rejecting God by what I do now. I just have to know what I'm doing and know it's wrong. That's knowledge. So the last line on that page, I say, full knowledge does not mean you are fully conscious that it is a mortal sin and mean to commit mortal sin as such. It simply means you know it's a sin. You're not ignorant of what you're doing. And it is in itself serious. But you're not thinking, I reject God. I know in doing this that I'm damning myself. I know in doing this that this is a mortal sin. Now I know it's serious, but I'm not needing to be thinking about God in doing that sin for it to be mortal. So, let's say St. Thomas teaches that a person... Sorry. High command there. Yeah. But wouldn't we, who are aware of the conditions, having committed moral sin, say, oh, crap, I'm in a state of moral sin? You'd think, wouldn't you? Uh, so, why don't we turn the page and look at that question exactly? Um, so, as I said, this is a sign that, that my, my teaching is going well. If you're asking the question, that's the very next thing I'm planning to answer. Um, so, um, let's just note here. So, 
I've titled this page, A Person Cannot Know Whether or Not He's in a State of Mortal Sin. And that's quoting Aquinas um, and the Council of Trent. Why is that the case? And here I'm summarizing St. Thomas's article. First, we cannot feel grace, right? Grace is a supernatural thing. It's beyond sensation. So you can't feel whether you're in a state of grace or not in a state of grace. Not one of us here in this room can feel whether grace is within us because grace is beyond feeling. That's the first point. Second point, self-deception. Self-deception leads us to make inaccurate judgments about ourselves. You know, this is a continual problem in the spiritual life. Why do all kinds of spiritual works always talk about self-knowledge, examination of yourself? Because we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves. We say, ah, it doesn't really matter. Or, so, self-deception self in some sense. Third, now this is a bit more complicated. A person might perform an outwardly good act, but do it under an isolated actual grace, as it's called, but not flowing from the possession of sanctifying grace. Thus, the doing of a single isolated good deed doesn't prove that a person is in a state of grace. So God is always giving out these graces, these individual graces we call actual graces. If you correspond with them and kind of cooperate, then those embed within you in sanctifying grace, something habitual, stable. But it's possible to receive the actual grace, but not in such a way that it habituates within yourself. So, so you can't say, well, I smiled at that sad seminarian this morning, so I did a good deed that must mean grace is active within me. Um, it doesn't mean there's habitual grace, sanctifying grace, that the life of grace is stable within you. Now all that said, point four here, nonetheless a person might conjecture that he is in a state of grace if certain outward indications suggest it, such as delighting in God. But St. Thomas notes, this knowledge is imperfect. And I summarize in bold practically, it follows that we should be cautious in assuming that we are not in a state of mortal sin, especially if we realize we've performed an act that is grave in its matter. So I know what I've done is grave matter, I'm educated enough as a seminarian or a normal Catholic, shall we say, it's very dangerous to presume, well, I don't think I fully consented or I didn't fully know what I was doing. You can't know whether grace is alive in you. Um, so you know on the external level what I did was grave matter, get to confession, sorry, repent, get to confession, put it right. And certainly when we're in a seminary surrounded by priests, um, it shouldn't be that difficult to do. Um, okay, that is the second of our three parts. Questions at this stage?
It's got to be serious in itself, grave matter. It's got to also be something you know what you are doing or your ignorance is not your fault. Then you've got to choose it, deliberate consent. So this is now page five, section C of my notes. Deliberate consent, also called complete consent. Eric, can you read the line from the catechism at the top there? A consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. Which is a useful phrase, a personal choice. If in some sense you don't choose it, how can it be your fault? Now, how is it possible to not choose it? That's what we need to kind of unpack. But before that, I note, first of all, I say, being able to consent to sin is the flip side of being free to love. So if someone says, well, no one would hate God, that's kind of the same as saying no one would love God. If it's not possible for there to be a free choice there, then the whole thing's unreal. So it is truly possible to reject God. And to do so in a single act, just as it is possible in a single act to come back to him, to convert, to repent. Now how? I asked the question here, how might full consent not be given? Jake, can you read that quotation from the Catechism? The promptings of feelings and passions can also diminish the voluntary and free character of the offense, as can external pressures and pathological disorders. Sin committed through malice by deliberate choice of evil is the greatest. Okay, so if it's malicious, that's the worst. You know it's wrong, and with malice you do it. Obviously the worst. Um, all kinds of things, though, diminish our capacity to make a free choice. So, somebody spikes your drink in a pub, and you're not thinking clearly. Your capacity to make a free choice has been diminished, and it's not your fault that it's diminished. However, you go down to the pub and you intentionally get blotto because you want to get blotto um, and drunk. Um, um, then it is what you do in that state is therefore fully something you're responsible for. So kind of at the exact moment, um, you may not know what you're doing, or shoot, but you put yourself into the state and you become responsible for everything you've done, yeah. Uh, what about, like, addiction? Okay, I'm going to come on to that, because that's really good as an example. Um, but let me just throw out a few other easier examples. Um, mental illness. Have I given the, that as an example before? Um, so I, I had a parishioner once who saw dragons, and he really saw dragons. Um, now, if he... And dragons weren't there, just to be clear. Um, if he killed somebody thinking he was killing a dragon, there would be no choice there, yes? It's, 
we can't really even call that a moral act. Various pathological conditions just render someone unable to choose or diminish someone's capacity to choose such that even though there might be consent, we can't really call it a deliberate consent. And there's a wide range of different mental states that diminish someone's capacity to consent. Jake's example of addiction, a really good example, so good I've already got it on my notes. <laughs> so, in bold there, I say, note, however, the difference between vice and incontinence. Who can remember the man of incontinence in our last lecture? Aristotle listed eight different kinds of guys. Right. Incontinent, not in control. He knows what's right and wrong, but he's too weak to do it. And I'm noting the difference between being weak and being vicious. The weak man and the vicious man both do something wrong. The vicious kind of happily goes for it. The weak, the incontinent, doesn't happily do it, but he does do it. I give the example of a drug addict. I say he might be weak. He wants to say no, but he gives in. His passions diminish his degree of consent. I say, or he might be vicious. He wants to say yes, and he does say yes. His passions work with his consent and increase its gravity. His evil deed ratifies his evil passion and confirms him in the vice so I say the same external activity might thus be vicious or incontinent, mortal sin or venial sin, or possibly not even a free act at all. What else might we want to unpack with the thought of someone with an addiction? Yeah? Obviously, an addiction ha happens. It doesn't like automatically like you're addicted. It right. takes time for that addiction to progress because uh, you put yourself, you know, in that situation. So in, in the beginning, it be, it is a sin, but is it there? Is there a moment where I don't know? Uh, Right, but you put yourself into that state. Yeah. So, so that, is that later state your fault you're there? Exactly. Um, maybe yes, maybe no. And this, this is something where ultimately God knows. Um, but there'd be one way of describing that where just like getting blind drunk and doing something sinful while drunk, you chose to put yourself in that state. Or getting drunk kind of progressively and never quite choosing it. So I have the first drink and the second drink 
and then I'm not counting anymore and we're busy doing whatever and I have a third drink and a fourth drink and I never intend to get drunk but by the time I'm having the fourth drink I've lost the capacity or I have a very diminished capacity to be properly thinking is this the fourth or the fifth or the sixth I just I'm having another um, so I've progressively put myself into that state whereas actually a good Christian a good seminarian should start his evening with a normal framework that I know how to behave to not over drink um, and what things to be keeping an eye on so like if you're swigging out of the bourbon bottle quite difficult to measure that uh, and bourbon any spirits kind of hit you um, after you've had it yeah so it's a a reasonable man is seeking to avoid getting himself into that problem will somehow have safeguards in place for myself I know two beers I'm fine two beers uh, and a fairly big glass of whiskey and I'm fine beyond that I might be but I'm no longer on safe territory um, yeah since we're talking about alcohol what if it's like you are talking about um, your ability to consume large amounts or not large amounts but what if you like Empty. right indeed so I know I haven't eaten all day and I'm tired and I went for a 13 mile run um, and I'm physically weak that right now if I have some alcohol it will affect me much more um, that's part of what a reasonable person thinks before deciding how much I'm pouring into the bourbon glass yeah um, now if I'm um, in a stable safe place where it's kind of okay for me to drink a bit more then I don't need to be as cautious with that as I do as a priest when I'm at a parish function where my ability to be ready to deal with something random thrown at me I've kind of on duty I can have something to drink but not as much, yeah. Um, anyway, where's the, all that going? The question of it being your own fault, you're not able to make that choice. So we sometimes put ourselves into that condition, but sometimes we don't put ourselves into that condition. That we didn't realize how tired we were, or didn't realize how what percentage alcohol that beer was, um, and so forth. So the general category, there are many factors that stop me being able to have deliberate consent. But there's also a sense, a bit like the ignorance with the knowledge, where it can be my own fault that I've put myself into that state. Okay, um, I'm going to run through these next sections a little more quickly because I've said basically everything I want to say. 
got a few things that are kind of like appendices here uh, to deal with um, questions sometimes that people ask and that we'll look at in more detail when we do moral theology properly. Degrees of consent. So there's a question that's sometimes asked, did you take pleasure in it? And I say it's not always tactful for a confessor to ask this question, but sometimes it can be helpful. For example, a boy confesses to being at a movie with sex scenes, but is self-contradictory about whether he consented to watch the images. Or a girl confesses to having sex with her boyfriend, but is self-contradictory about whether she consented. The principle I put next, a lack of pleasure is usually a sign of a lack of consent. What kind of pleasure? Well, we're meaning a spiritual pleasure. Um, how does that unpack? So here I quote St. Francis de Sales. Um, if you look in the footnotes, you'll see a few similar um, sources, saints, I quote, saying basically the same thing. First, a temptation is conceived in the mind. Second, a person either takes pleasure in that thought or not. And third, the person either consents or not. So if you don't, pleasure is the first step to consent. So if you don't take pleasure in it, you don't consent. I note, however, pleasure can be either in the inferior bodily or the superior spiritual part of the soul. And the pleasure we're concerned with here is at the spiritual. John Paul, can you, uh, no, actually, I'll, I'll, St. Jerome, I say, gives the example of an imprisoned male saint tied to a bed while a sensuous woman caresses him, etc. Though his spirit refuses to consent to her, his body will respond to her touches and there will be sensual pleasures. Constancy in spiritual distaste for what is occurring will be a sign of his lack of consent. So, just because his body responds doesn't mean he consents. Just because his body triggers pleasure doesn't mean he consents. He's describing a saint, a martyr, who was so heroic in his virtue that he was able to consistently have a spiritual distaste through all that happening. So if you don't take pleasure in it, you've not consented. I see the stuff on the TV, I don't take pleasure in it, I've not consented. Jake? I think you may have just answered my question because uh, I was going to say, how does the example of when confesses being in a movie with the sex scene, like how did he not know prior to going to it at all? I mean, if he doesn't know, obviously, but... So he might know there's going to be this moment in the movie and he doesn't intend to watch it, but then actually it comes on more suddenly than he was expecting. But he doesn't take pleasure in it. He doesn't see it and then look and look some more. Um, a spiritual distaste is a sign of not taking pleasure in it and therefore not consenting. And a mixture of spiritual distaste and pleasure is a sign of not fully consenting. 
That's a different question, but you're right. Um, so we shouldn't generally put ourselves on occasions of sin, but we also have these situations arise all the time that when we don't plan them. Briefly, dreams. Um, so if our sins while awake influence our dreams, then according to St. Gregory, we are guilty for the impure dreams. St. Francis de Sales similarly says, bad dreams voluntarily procured by the depraved thoughts of the day are in some sort sins, and as much as they are consequences and execution of the malice proceeding. Somewhat related, Augustine notes, there's a type of consent between dreaming and wakefulness. So you're dreaming of something racy. Um, between dreaming and being fully awake, there's a type of consent that can happen that we would imagine not being deliberate consent, but a partial consent. You wake and continue to entertain it and continue to entertain it, and it can shift to being deliberate consent. Last example there, I quote from the, one of, some of the pre-conciliar manuals. Um, involuntary ejaculation and nocturnal omissions. For example, half asleep at night or in response to involuntary external stimuli. If one takes voluntary pleasure in an involuntary omission, then this is gravely, gravely sinful that you're taking pleasure in it, even though you didn't initially cause it, makes it become a moral choice. Um, just throw that out there because it is in the manuals. Well, what about in the case of delay? Um, so you're envisaging she does take pleasure in it? Is that why that's relevant? Well, I guess the difference between spiritual and bodily pleasure. Right? Exactly, right, right. And so that's a really important point. Just because she experiences physical pleasures doesn't mean she's consented, um, which is kind of one of the reasons to run through that as an example. Okay, 10 minutes um, on page 13, um, Adam's question, Appendix 5. Confession before Holy Communion, receiving Holy Communion worthily. Uh, Brother Adam, can you read the first quote there from John Paul II's Redemptoris Sacramentorum? The Church's custom shows that it is necessary for each person to examine himself at death and that anyone who is conscious of great sin should not celebrate or receive the body of the Lord without prior sacramental confession, except for grave reason when the possibility of confession is lacking. In this case, he will remember that he is bound by the obligation of making an act of perfect contrition, which includes the intention to confess as soon as possible. Adam, if you could read the next quote from the Catechism here. Anyone who is aware of having sin must not receive holy communion, even if he experiences deep contrition, without having first received sacramental absolution, unless he has a grave reason for receiving communion, and there is no possibility of going to confession. 
What would a grave reason be? Well, if you're a priest, the parish 8.30 mass is there, the people are waiting. Um, I can't not say mass for the sake of the people, so I need to make a perfect act of contrition, which includes the intention, that's what a perfect act of contrition includes, this always, the intention to get to confession as soon as possible. Um, now, if you're more generally, I say, how long should one refrain from receiving Holy Communion after committing a mortal sin, for example, masturbation, pornography? Say, so continue going to Mass, but do not receive Holy Communion until going to confession. Aim to get to confession speedily. Even if you wait a couple weeks, still don't go to Communion until you get to confession. So that's kind of the standard advice. How long is it reasonable to put yourself, how long is it reasonable for me to deprive myself of the sacramental grace available in communion? Well, I make a comparison. I say the church teaches that general absolution is only permissible if the lack of it will prevent someone receiving Holy Communion for more than a month. I, we don't have a right, I mean, you can't use the word right in this context, but by analogy, to Holy Communion more often than monthly. I say, however, however, if for a grave reason you are prevented from getting to confession for some weeks, I say, in such an unlikely scenario, one, make a perfect act of contrition for your sins, two, with the intention of going to confession as soon as possible, and then go to Holy Communion. I say, for priests, the pastoral duty to celebrate parish masses would probably necessitate the course of action just outlined above. And I note, recall from our lecture on this point, St. Thomas teaches a man cannot be certain that he's not in a state of mortal sin. He can't feel grace, there's self-deception. So we should be cautious in assuming that we're not in a state of mortal sin. If we've done something that objectively speaking is grave matter. So, example, we've done something that might possibly have put us in a state of moral sin, but we're not entirely sure. And like you said, we should, you know, if we're assuming that, we should be cautious and not receive. Say you, someone does receive, um, and you said that they it still brings condemnation upon them. That's the words of St. Paul. He who so eats and drinks unworthily. You would then confess that you would then. So, and this is a standard thing you will hear people confess. Um, I received Holy Communion unworthily after having watched pornography. Um, so, I watched pornography and I received Communion unworthily that's a sin in itself to articulate. If you didn't know, um, then it's not your fault. So why might you not know? Typical teenage boy in our culture is raised, taught in your public high schools, pornography's healthy, pornography's normal, masturbation's just what a guy does. You can grow up in our culture today and not have a clue that there's something problematic there at all. Um, 
there's no knowledge. A Catholic in the midst of that might have a confused knowledge or a knowledge where he lies to himself or he's not fully knowing. Uh, a bit hard to evaluate, but we can envisage a scenario there where subjectively he's not guilty. Um, standard advice in this regard is there are other graces we receive by being faithful in respecting communion by not receiving unworthily that it will benefit you to refrain um, that God will reach out to you in some other way because you're taking this seriously um, summarizing everything we've done today Mortal sin. Not all sin is mortal. There's this thing called venial sin, which is an offense against God, but does not kill the life of grace within you. But this thing, the life of grace, the life of God himself, the divine charity within you, that life can be killed and can be killed by a single act, what we call a mortal sin, Venial sin will dispose you to that, but there are actions that a single act, what we call a mortal sin, can kill that grace. It has to be something serious in itself, what we call grave matter. You've got to have knowledge of what you're doing. Not knowledge in the sense, I think it's a mortal sin, it's going to kill the life of grace, but I know it's a sin, I know what I'm doing. And you've got to have the freedom to be making that choice in what we call deliberate consent.